It's good to be uh, back this week with you, and I'm glad to be opening up God's Word uh, in this series that we're calling uh, The Story of a King. This week is actually the last uh, week in this series that we will be in the book of First and Second Samuel. But today is uh, one that is very memorable, is a portion of this text that many of you have heard, you have studied before. And it is one that many people refer to as the fall of David. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We've seen some very highlight moments for David. In fact, I guess last week would be the primary highlight when the Lord spoke to David and spoke over him and told him that it would be through his family that would become the, uh, that the king would come. That the one that would come after him would remain on the throne. It would be a, an eternal kingdom. We have David after chapter seven having consistent victories, consistent success. God's people are at a high point here in 2 Samuel chapter eight and chapter nine. David as a man is at a high point in chapter nine. He cares for Jonathan's child. He shows compassion. He shows kindness. And he gives us an example of what we would assume a king ought to be. In chapter 11, though, we have the story that we're gonna call the fall of David. So I want us to pray and then we're going to study this text that I'm gonna be honest with you is dark and it is sad. But it will be in the midst of this sadness that I believe that we can find hope. And I, I believe in the midst of the destruction of this event, we can see the beauty of Advent and the coming of the Lord. So let's pray and then Let's dive into God's word. Father, thank you so much for this word. I pray that you would give us eyes to see it. I pray you'd give us ears to hear it. God, may we lean into you today. May we believe that it is before you that we are all laid naked and exposed. Or that you have the power with your word to shine light into the darkest places of our lives. Lord, you have the power with your word to raise up even what's dead to life. Lord, I pray that you would bring joy in this place today. That you'd restore lives in this place today. That you would bring freedom in this place today. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to look with me at number one on your outline, and that is the fall of David. And we'll begin there in chapter 11, verse one. And we wanna see letter A there. We wanna see the stage set. And that's the stage for a fall set. Chapter 11, verse one says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, the winter is over, 
And now it's time for uh, the expeditions to continue for the people and, and for the people to go out. It says at the time when kings go out to battle, we're told that David sent Joab. David sent Joab and his servants with him in all of Israel. And we're told that they dominated. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But look at that last verse there in, I mean, uh, that last line in verse one. But David, he remained at Jerusalem. This is the setting that verse two tells us that it happened. It happened. What happened? Fall happened. Verse two, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. See, this is the stage that's set up for disaster. The stage where it happened. Where in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, we find disengaged David on spring break. Seriously, you know, some stuff can happen on spring break. And it can even happen to King David. And we have David disengaged. We have him sleeping in, relaxing, chilling, and idly wandering around the penthouse, surfing the city line of Jerusalem. When he sees something that breaks the boredom of his day, he sees her, he sees a woman bathing, and we're told that she was very beautiful. Now I want you to understand there is not a thing wrong with having some time off. There's nothing wrong with an off day. There is nothing wrong with a good day on the couch. It's good to rest. And in fact, it's very biblical to rest. We probably need to rest more. But David is in a place when we find him here where he appears disengaged and he is idle. He is just straight up killing time. This can be a setting of disaster. It certainly will be for David here. And this has been the context for disappointment and failure for many. In our day, we're much more likely to instead of searching or surfing the city lines, we're much more likely to surf the web. It's while idly surfing that many find themselves seeing what they ought not see and pursuing what they ought not pursue. In our culture, idle surfing and killing time and wandering around on the web, it seems to be very normal. We surf and scroll while we're on the couch. We surf and scroll while we're at the dinner table, while we're in a crowd, while we're in the car, while we're by ourselves, or while we're in the midst of company. 
We surf the web while we're in our bed before we go to sleep. And oftentimes the first thing we do when we wake up. I want you to know there is certainly, there's much to be thankful for with the access that we have. There is much to be thankful for with the advantages that we have with the internet. But idly surfing and scrolling has been the downfall of many. We're not the first culture to struggle with sexual immorality. I don't know if you knew that. Ever since the fall of man, this has been a struggle. But we are the first people to have the access that we do. There has never been a time in the history of this world where people all around the world have the access that we do. And I want you to know that the abuse of this access has been a downfall in our world. I'll give you just a few stats while we're on the subject. It's a subject that shouldn't be ignored by the church. It's certainly not ignored by Christ who is our head. Read a recent survey that says that males 18 to 30 years old, that of the one survey that 79% viewed pornography in that month, 63% viewed it several times that week. In the same survey, women, 34% had viewed it at least once that month and 18% several times that week. Same survey showed that the highest consumers of pornography are children 12 to 17 and 90% of kids that are eight to 16 years old who were surveyed had visited a porn site within the last couple of months. The numbers are not very different in the church and outside the church and even a large number of surveyed pastors admitted to viewing porn during their time or their tenure as the pastor of the church where they were. With that being said, we won't go into more detail than maybe we should today, but I would say, men, be on guard. Women, be on guard. Husbands, be on guard. Wives, be on guard. And I'm not trying to stir up anything. I'm not trying to get your opinions. I'm not trying to tell you my opinion about cell phones here. What I am gonna say is parents, be on guard. Listen, in my adult life, I will tell you this, and I want you to hear me. I have not looked at pornography. But when I was a kid, if I had this, if I was 15 and I had this, we had dial up. Like even if I wanted to look at something like I, it takes 30 minutes and there comes my dad. Like you, you don't have time. I didn't have this. I'm serious. Listen, listen, it seems funny, but it's not. The access that we have is unreal. And I want you to know as your pastor, I go to extremes to protect myself. 
But there is not a person in this room, including myself, who is above falling. Do not assume yourself or anyone else to be above a fall. And it's for that that we must be intentional. Beware of the dangers that can come from idly just killing time. David, God said, was a man after his own heart. David, the one who inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote these words. This is Psalm 19. He said, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. David said in this, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He wrote these words and he believed these words. He meant these words. This is the man that wrote the 23rd Psalm. It's King David. The man who walks off the ledge of this idle and disengaged moment into a downfall of sexual sin and scandal. Leave our point A there, the stage set, and I want you to go to B, the scandal happens. The scandal happens. We're told this, verse three, and the woman was, or we're told that she was very beautiful, verse three, and David sent and he inquired about the woman. Now, I don't know like if David, what he was looking for when he went outside. I imagine he just got off the couch. He was just killing time. He just walked outside looking at the city line. There's no reason for us to think that he was trying to see something in the city. I don't know if he was surfing with some immoral intent. I seriously doubt that he was. But when he saw her bathing, he took it a step further from that. He didn't go back inside. He went and he inquired about her. He asked about her. He didn't just see, he desired. And when he desired, he sent inquiring about the woman and one said, this is Bathsheba. This is the daughter of Iliam. And this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I I love verse three for so many reasons, but here's at least one reason. Most sin and certainly sexual sin involves most of the time dehumanization. And so instead of a woman being a image bearing beautiful woman created by God, she becomes an object. And girls, just let me speak over you real quick. None of you are objects. All of you are beautifully made in the image of God. You're to be loved and cared for. But what happens here is David sees her as an object and he wants her. We're told that this is not an object. This is actually somebody's daughter. This is Iliam's daughter. And here's what's so interesting about this. Iliam saved David's life. If you read 1 Samuel, you read it to his entirety. This man saved David's life. And is told that's his daughter. Uriah was one of David's 30 mighty men. This is one of David's boys. And they say, that's his wife. 
And David sends for her anyway. And the text says that he took her. This is the progression of sin. We see it in the Garden of Eden. You, you see it, you desire it, and you take it. And that's what David does here. He sees her, he desires her, he takes her. Well, she comes, she stays the night with him. He gets word later that she says in, uh, it says verse five, the woman conceived and she sent and she told David, I'm pregnant. We're told, and just to get the details there in verse four, that she, when she was bathing, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. I'm not gonna go into detail there, just understand. The point is, she was not pregnant before this. She came to David's house. And now, sometime later, he gets word that she's pregnant. So David, in the aftermath of his lack of self-control and his sin, he begins to scheme and he begins to plot to save face and to cover up his own life. So once again, the writer of Psalm 119, the writer of Psalm 23, he begins to scheme and plot. And here's what he does. Plan number one, he says, let's get Uriah home and make this look like it's his kid. Let's get him home and make it look like it's his kid. And so he calls for him on the battlefield. He makes his way all the way there. I don't know how much time this takes. It must not take that long. And he gets there and David begins to butter him up. He begins to ask him, how's Joab? How's everybody on the field? Is everybody good? Awesome. Go home to your wife. Yeah, good. Don't worry about it. I'm asking you questions, but don't really answer. Just go on home. Go on home, man. Go see your wife. Spend time with your wife. You've been gone a while. But here's the thing. Uriah cares more about what's going on with his boys. He cares more about where he was pulled from. He cares so much about it that he can't just go home and enjoy a night at home. And so he goes to sleep outside the door of where the servants sleep. He wakes up the next morning and David gets word that he didn't go home. And he says, okay, we gotta go plan B of this. And so he invites him over again. He says, let's hang out. And so they start the chit chat again. And this time he breaks out wine. And he just continues pouring and pouring and pouring. Keep on drinking Uriah. And at the point that he feels like he's had just enough, he goes, okay, now you should go home. He's just right now, go on home, go on home to your wife. And we're told that Uriah, even in a drunken state, is thinking more clearly than King David. And he goes and he falls asleep, not at home, but in the midst once again of a group of people working under David. See, these guys, and we're, and we're told this uh, in 1 Samuel 21, that they make a commitment when they go in battle not to be with their wives, not to be with any women. 
First Samuel 21, we get a little hint of this. Uh, verse four says, uh, and the priest answered David and said, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. Verse five, David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. Like the norm was like we're committed to what we said we were going out for. When we're on the job, we're on the job. And so Uriah is committed to this. He cannot concentrate. He can't go home right now. He's supposed to be there. David should be there, but instead he's plotting. And he's scheming. Well, after this doesn't work, you know what happens. David goes to the next plan. And that's have Uriah killed in battle. Make it look like he got killed just because he was fighting. But really, David goes to Joab, he gets word to him, he says, put him on the front line. Put him in the most dangerous spot. Joab, of course, knows this isn't right, but he still has this plan uh, structured and in place. And we get word at the end of chapter 11 that Uriah and many others are killed on the line in battle. Verse 26, we're told that when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and she bore him a son. So we have David this man, the man after God's own heart. We saw the stage set. We saw him just idly disengaged, sleeping in on spring break, looking over the city line. We see him find Bathsheba. We see him call for her, take her. We see this situation take place. She is now pregnant and he schemes to make it look like it was Uriah. That doesn't work. So he has Uriah killed. And then what happens is he says, now I've got to take her as my wife and make it look like we, you know, she got pregnant on the honeymoon and that's what took place and here's our baby. That's David. I believe at the end of chapter 11, David believes it's all swept under the rug. It's all good. You know, I, I believe he thinks he's just started a new chapter in his life. And what's done is done. It is what it is. But we're told right at the end of chapter 11, the last verse, we're told, but the thing that David had done, it displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And it's here I wanna take the time to give you two one-liners. First one is this. Our sin is never as private as we might like to think that it is. Our sin is never as private as we might like to think it is. Maybe you think that what's done is done. It is what it is. Second one-liner is this. Our sin always affects more than just us. 
Our sin always affects more than just us. But the thing displeased the Lord. Chapter 12, verse one. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is an act of kindness. This is an act of patience of the Lord. This is an act of uh, mercy from the Lord that he sends Nathan to David. The Lord doesn't allow David to just sweep this under the rug. In fact, you can be sure no sin will ever just be swept under the rug. Our sin is either on us or on Jesus, period. It's never just swept under the rug. David believes that it is and chapter 12 takes place and it's a very memorable story. Nathan the prophet comes to him and he tells him a story. And I don't know what David was doing. Like, I, I don't know if he was in the midst of like daily routine, if, if he was uh, you know, going off to play golf or whatever he was about to do. I don't, I don't know what David was up to on this day. I don't know exactly how much time has taken place. But Nathan comes to him and he just begins to tell him a story. And if Nathan's like some of the other prophets, he's probably a pretty weird dude. Like the prophets were, they, they were oftentimes pretty strange. So Nathan the prophet just comes up and is like, hey man, hey, before you go, I got a story. And he probably came up with that intense face. Story for you. Stop, David. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but a little lamb. It's one that he had bought. And he brought it up. It grew with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now, usually that's a really good thing. That's like a shallow goal in life is to be the man, but not in this story. He says, you are the man I'm talking about. The parable's about you. Now listen, there's all kinds of issues, all kinds of places we can go when we read this parable and then we see it connected to David. And we just gotta understand, it's not the parable I wish was told, you know, I wish it was like, you should only have one sheep and you took somebody else's sheep. That's not the way it goes. It goes, you could have had any sheep over here, but you took this man's sheep. The reality is here, David was the king. 
David didn't honor women the way we wish he would honor women. He doesn't honor women the way God honors women. David had more than one wife. He had many wives. David had concubines. There's nowhere in the scripture where the Lord says that pleases him. It doesn't please the Lord, but that's what it was like in David's life. That's what we see with many of the kings. They don't handle relationships and women the way we wish they would or that God would have them or have us to handle relationships. But what Nathan does, he comes in his own context and he says, what are you doing? You got all of these people. I guarantee you, David didn't sleep by himself often. This is your house over here and you went and you took your ride. It's not the way I wish he would have said it, but it's the way that he said it and it, God used it. And he said, you are the man. This is about you. Verse seven, continue. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Listen, it's from here that David repents. It's at this point that David turns to the Lord. It's in this moment that he cries out to God. Verse 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. See, David's sin was exposed. I, I wanna remind you of the verse that we just read earlier. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 through 16. We're told for the, the word of the Lord is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What this is saying is God's word has the ability to say to every one of us, you are that man. You are. Your sin exposed and laid bare. So number one, we saw the fall of David Number two, I want us to see repentance and the steadfast love of God. See, we're given a glimpse here into David's personal life as he cries out, I have sinned against the Lord. But in the book of Psalms, we have many times where we see David writing about his personal feelings and his heart, his own journey into the grace of God. But in Psalm 51, we have something very special. And we have David's actual prayer of repentance from this scene in 2 Samuel 12. And so I wanna ask if you would to turn there, Psalm 51. And if you've read the Psalms, you, you probably notice a lot of them have 
notes that come before the psalm itself. And in this particular one, we're told that this psalm was written when Nathan the prophet came to David. And I just want you to listen to this beautiful song. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David says, purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I mean, what, what a beautiful prayer. What a beautiful prayer. And it's here that as a church body and as people who are studying God's word, as we're watching this story unfold in David's life, as we're seeing the story of a king take a turn and it's not the kind of turn that we wanted. It's gonna be a turn that's not gonna go upward. It's gonna go downhill from here. It's in the midst of this that we need to see and understand the beauty of God's steadfast love and a repentant heart. See, David turns here back to the Lord. I believe that there are some here today and I believe all of us can turn today and direct our attention and our focus to the steadfast love of the Lord. It's always a good day to repent. It's always a good day to turn to Jesus. It's always a good day to turn and look at the steadfast love of the Lord. But there may be some of you here today who are in the midst that you have things in your life that are hidden or you believe are hidden. You have things in your life that are eating you up, that your sin is always before you. There may be some of you in this room today that there are things that you know, disasters that have come into your life because of decisions and choices that you made. You know that you saw and you desired and you took what you were not supposed to take. And whatever that means in your life, wherever you are today, 
If it's you with a computer addiction or if it's you with an inappropriate relationship in your life, if it's physical or if it's emotional or whatever it might be, you're in places that you ought not be and you're pursuing what you ought not pursue. It's here that we turn to the Lord. We turn to the steadfast love of God. David, in the midst of his sin, he turns to the Lord. And in the steadfast love of God, look at what we find. Look at that section there in your worship, God. We find mercy. We find mercy. The word mercy can mean so many things. The, the word mercy is, is really more than what oftentimes we state it to be. We say it's not getting what we deserve, but it's so much more than that. It's God's compassion for you. God was still compassionate about David. His, he, he had compassion even for him in that state. He had mercy to give him. And in the steadfast Lord of the Lord, we find his mercy. In the steadfast love of the Lord, we find grace. I love James chapter four and really talking about the midst of relational sin and in this situation, fighting and quarreling. But it says that right in the heat of how can this get any worse, we're told that he gives more grace. Actually, but he gives more grace. And right here, David sees this. He encounters this. He, he sees in the steadfast of the Lord, he finds grace, that God gives more grace. Grace deeper than his sin. Grace that is deeper and wider than what he's gotten himself into. And that he's even brought others into. The beautiful grace of God. In the steadfast love of God, we find forgiveness. In the steadfast love of God, we find righteousness. I love in this prayer of repentance, David says, hide your face from my sins. Turn your face away from my sin and blot out my iniquities. How did David even know to say something like that? How could he even imagine that that could be possible? For you and I, though, we know where our righteousness comes from. We're told that for he who knew no sin became sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Our righteousness is in heaven. Our righteousness is in Christ. And when we turn and when we repent, we remember how our sins can be blotted out. And it is in Christ and in Christ alone. In the steadfast love of God, we find his presence. We find the presence of God. He knows the worst of us and yet he remains with us. David cries out and he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. In Christ Jesus, for us today, in the church today, for those who have received the Lord, we know that we have him present in us. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Turn to him and cling to him. He's merciful and he's kind and he's full of grace and mercy and compassion. You can't be more right with him in 10,000 years than you are today and he's with you. David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
I think it's possible that today in the room that there are people who because of sin in your life currently, things that you haven't turned to, that you don't have joy. Joy is found in coming to Jesus. Come to him, cling to him, look to him today. He can restore your life and bring you lastly there, sure hope, sure hope. Now here's the tough part. See, that's so beautiful and it's so true. And all of those things are offered freely to us in Christ. But I wanna remind you of number three and it's the heavy consequences of sin. See, we see the fall of David. We see the beauty of repentance and the steadfast love of God. But yet number three is the, the sad and the dark turn that we find in the book of 2 Samuel. Chapter 12, David and Bathsheba's son will die. That does not mean that any death that you know of, any, any death that has been experienced in and around your life, it does not mean it is related to your personal sin. In this story, we see this as part of the judgment that God brings into his life. And God alone is trustworthy and good. I don't understand it, but that's what takes place here. David and Bathsheba's son will die. And after that, there was a promise from the Lord that the sword would come against David and his family. And I just wanna give you a quick run through of the rest of the book. It's awful. David's stepdaughter will be raped by one of David's sons. One of David's other sons will kill that son. The son that killed the son will come after David and desire to take away his throne. David will be on the run. He will be fleeing from his son, Absalom. And really from this point into the rest of David's life and certainly his kingship, it is an absolute downhill spiral from the rest of his life. And there are many consequences to that day. Now, I mean, what, what does that mean? Like, well, first of all, if you're in the room today and you say, okay, so is the rest of my life gonna be a downward spiral? I, I, I didn't say that. What I've said to you is this, there's sure grace. There is sure forgiveness. There is sure presence and hope for you in Christ. There's restoring grace for you in your life. But that doesn't mean there's not consequences. So I wanna give you an example. What if I, as one of your pastors, what if I committed a moral fail failure? What if I did as David had done? Could I find forgiveness? Absolutely. Can I find grace? Absolutely. Would the Lord meet me with his steadfast love? Absolutely. 
But what would happen in my family? What would happen with my kids? What would happen with this church? Would I ever have a role in ministry again? Would I ever be able to regain trust that I have? I I doubt it. I doubt it. And what trust would be gained would take a long, long, long time and a whole lot of grace and compassion for me to experience it. David made a decision in chapter 11 that would cause the rest of his life and his kingship to go downhill. Did he experience forgiveness and grace? Yes, but there were consequences. See, these are dark days. This is where David and all of the people had hoped they would never go. But this is the setting that for our time, for our time in this study, the reason why we came to First and Second Samuel, this is the setting that we needed to see because it's here in this darkness, it's here in this place that First and Second Samuel points us outside of ourselves, points us outside of the story and outside of ourselves to look for something else. It gives us a longing. Desiring a good news that could never come from David. Good news that was promised to come, not in David, but through David. See, even though David would make poor choices in chapter 11 and a few other areas, though David would be on the run, though his life would be hard and his days dark, the Lord's promise to David would remain. Though David would be a a king that, or, or through David would be a king that would rule and reign forever. Through David would be a king that when he's tempted, he wouldn't sin. Through David would be a king that would bring light into the darkness and hope for all peoples. It's in the darkness of the crumbling kingship of David that we will look for the first advent, the coming of, the first, of, the, of Jesus Christ, the King. Leading us to point number four, the gospel of the better David. Next week, we will go from this point all the way to Matthew 1. And we'll see in history, we'll see in the Bible, the promises connected and the, the hope given for this king that would come through David. One that would be better than David. One that would bring hope, not just for Israel, but for all people. That of course is Jesus Christ. And for you today, we're on the other side of that first advent but you might not be on the other side of repenting from something going on in your life. You might not understand how even in the midst of consequences and in dark days, for you personally or in the world around you, how you can walk and how you can live free in Christ Jesus.
And I want you to know that today, even though Christ, he is, he is come, he has died, he has risen from the grave. I want you to know that there's an advent that we will be pointing to that we still long for. And it's his second advent when he comes again. And for you today, if you have nothing else to celebrate, if you feel that there is only darkness around you, I want you to know that God is with you and he is coming again. That Jesus Christ will do everything he says he will do. And even if you are living in the midst of consequences to sin in your life, you can know that his promise has remained. And it's in that that we will walk. And so today we're going to sing one of my favorite songs and Kyle, you can go ahead and come up. We're gonna sing this song, His Mercy is More. Our sins, they were many but his mercy is more. As we sing this song, I wanna invite you. I, I'm going to not face you, but I will be here to receive you. I'm gonna be on the front row. And here's what I wanna say to you. If you're in a place today, if you're in a place today where you say, I need prayer, there's something that's been hidden that I want exposed. There's something that I want known. I want you to know that up here in the front, there's a place where you can be known and loved because we have a God who knows the worst about you and loves you anyway. And so today, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever sin is in your life, I wanna invite you to come and find freedom in the Lord. I cannot ever promise freedom from consequences. We see that in the scriptures, you know that in our lives, but I can promise you freedom from your sin. Father, thank you for the way that you love us and care for us. Thank you.